are days when you are just not feeling it. Days where you feel like you've lost your mojo. If you're looking to get it back, then you've tuned to the right station. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Hey everybody and welcome to another edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Well, the year is getting away from us, but we are still trucking on. And I've got to say, I know I say it every week, but this is this week is an absolute cracking show. And if you are an entrepreneur, a business leader, if you're somebody who has an idea that you want to bring to life, this show you will want to listen to very carefully with a pen and paper, and trust me, you'll want to listen to it over and over again, just as Robbo and I have. If you're new to the show, the idea of the Mojo Radio Show is just to find people that we, as in Robbo and Murray, find interesting. We chat to them, we extract their opinions, their tips, their tools, their angles on stuff to help us get our mojo working in and out of the workplace. Driving the big red bus with the Velua seat covers and the lava lamp in the corner behind the panel, Robbo, welcome to the show, mate. How, how is you? Oh, it's very well, thank you. Yeah, doing really well. And yourself? Very good. And I've got to be honest, I'm a little buckled today. Oh, I buckled. did a road race on my Treadley yesterday mm-hmm. as preparation for the 2016 Signature Tour for the Tour de Cure. Yeah. And uh, I was racing against some very, very good cyclists, many who are half my age. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's fair to say they put me away. Really? <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it funny, though? Isn't it funny, though, that when, when, like you say, when they're half your age, you think those young bucks, they're not getting away with it and how hard you'll actually push yourself? <laughs> well, it is. And what I found is, you know, because you're rolling through on the front of the pack, you know, doing your turns. And as these kids went past me, mm. they're fresh faced and this beautiful skin <laughs> and they're young and tanned legs and stuff. And I'm just, it, it, it really did. Uh, it was it was quite fulfilling actually <laughs> to see these kids that are just these young weapons with the world in front of them. And um, so anyway, there was a little bit of uh, a little bit of a workout in the weekend, getting ready for the Tour de Cure, running from Brisbane to Sydney this year. You can check it out online, folks. The Tour de Cure Australia, but um, looking to raise some more money and awareness around the whole cancer thing. Yeah. So that was my weekend, mate. Nice one. That's very mm. good. My weekend was uh, a bit quieter than that. <laughs> yeah, in hindsight, mine should have been a bit quite like that too. Which leads me on to the start of the show this mm. week, Rabu. Yes. Do you remember your good mate, Ella James? Indeed I do. How could I forget the beautiful Ella James? The beautiful Ella James, who is a comedian in Los Angeles, an Australian girl who moved across there as doing good in LA mm-hmm. on the comedy scene. Well, I'm having a pretty relaxed afternoon once we finish recording the show, and I'm going to have a pocket day. Do you remember that? Yes, I do remember that. So let's flash back to episode 22. This is the beautiful Ella James talking about pocket days. I use a lot of devices like um, I use Evernote, I use Pocket to capture web pages. Um, And then I have my pocket days where I go back to pocket and I sift through what I want to read, what I want to um, dump, what I want to keep and do something with. So it's a little bit of a filing cabinet for me, if you like. Oh, I like that. Pocket days. I like that. That's cool. Now, I'm a great believer in, I I read a lot of books, but I'm also a great believer in Pocket. And Pocket is an app, folks, you can get. And what happens is if you find, if somebody sends you a blog or you find a website and as you're trawling through your stuff, now's not the time to read it. You simply hit the Pocket app 
and it loads it up into the Pocket app and you can, you can tag it, you can categorize it so that when you are offline, perhaps you're on a flight or on a bus and you don't have a service, you can simply read through all these stories. And to me, it creates like a flipboard or it creates like a book. And I tend to save this stuff up and every two weeks just sit down and have an afternoon where I read through my pocket. It's, um, are you using it yet? I am. I've just started using it, I'll be honest. It, um, I, do put, I have put some stuff away in it and I do use it for the Mojo show. Um, but I've also got to be honest that I, I have an old system where I just had a bookmark folder that I used to bookmark stuff to. Yeah, and yeah. I still fall into that habit occasionally when I'm not thinking about it. No, I started using it once Ella put us onto it. And I must say yeah. I'm a massive fan of the old pocket because you can tag things. And once you've read the story, you can then go back and put in a heading, as as you can with, I guess, something like Evernote. Mm. I just like the look of uh, Pocket because you can put it actually captures the pictures in your story and the whole the graphics and stuff. So um, yeah, right. anyway, folks, if you're not onto it, grab Pocket. It's getpocket.com. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But uh, I'm having a Pocket Arvo this Arvo. Hey, <laughs> sitting in your pocket. <laughs> Now, we have got a cracker this week, yeah. so uh, let's get into our guest. The Mojo Radio Show. I was doing a job for a big corporate in Sydney last week, and I'd finished my speech, my keynote, and a lady came up to the side of the stage, and she said, young girl, and she said, I've got an idea for something which I think could change the world. And I went, that's the coolest thing. Where are you at with it? She said, well, I want to start sharing it, but I'm really worried about telling people what do you know about intellectual property. And my reply to her was, listen to the Mojo Radio Show next week because we have an absolute expert on. Yeah. And I, I have met Alicia Beverly through reputation, through some common speaking gigs that we have done on different platforms. And the people who mutually know both of us have said, you guys, it would be great together because I speak on innovation and Mojo. And Alicia Beverly speaks on how do you protect your intellectual property, trademarks, patents, and how that all works in no matter what size business you've got, how does this whole thing work? And we all worry about telling people an idea. What does it mean? How do we protect it? So thankfully, we have Alicia on the show today, and this is going to be a cracking show. Alicia, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thanks for having me, Gary. Really appreciate it. Yeah. I, I, I must say, I am really looking forward to this conversation today because intellectual property, or we, as we shall call it IP, is not a topic I've ever heard discussed on a podcast. So this is really good. I've got loads of ground for us to cover, and I suspect we'll uncover stuff as we go through it. But just to start us off, Alicia, can you just give me an idea of the sort of work you're doing day to day and who you'd be likely doing it with? Yes, I tend to work with the whole spectrum from the startup um, green-edged uh, guy, you know, who's probably in his um, middle 20s um, and more young women too who are joining that area of um, – 
I guess the, the brand new world of how they could make a difference. There's an enormous yeah. amount of earnestness in the startup environment. Uh, a lot of people taking themselves uh, really very seriously, I guess primarily because the stakes are so high and they they uh, they stand to make many millions if they get it right. All the way through to the very established business person, somebody who has um, been around the traps maybe for decades and has uh, probably built several businesses and they've gone through many phases and they've seen many cycles. And in amongst uh, that range is uh, pretty much the very same intellectual property issues. I don't care how long you've been in business or what your business is. There's almost a boilerplate set of intellectual property issues. You call yourself an intellectual property strategist and I, I actually really like that term is, is this something that we need to be making a strategy but probably aren't? Yes, because every business is actually built on a foundation of intellectual property. The problem is, is that as business people, we get distracted by the bright and shiny stuff just like we do in everyday life. You know, something um, sexy like innovation, which of course is the buzzword, and why every single startup is actually a small business. You know, in the old days, we called them small businesses, and now everybody's a startup, right? <laughs> so the, the sexy stuff is innovation, and, and that's why I tend to refer to this as kind of a, a, a twinship, a really odd twinship, or maybe just the odd couple, if you were into watching those many years ago, those that series. And the odd couple is effectively that innovation is um, the sexy twin everybody wants to go out with. You know, she's the life of the party. She's changing her clothes for every gig. She's up with everything that's the latest. And she's bright and sparkly. And we're just amazed at her. She's like a breath of fresh air. And in a way, she kind of just slips through our fingers all the time. We're always running after her. But her not-too-sexy, rather quiet, studious uh uh, twin is back at uh, base and that's intellectual property and she really doesn't give a damn whether you're interested. The fact of the matter is there are laws that govern what your rights are, whether you choose to know what they are or don't. Um, they just exist and they have existed and they're part of things that we also don't like to care about such as treaties and they're, you know, they're part of, um, of world trade. Things that sound kind of too stodgy for us you know, like when you get married and someone refers to you by, you know, you're married, uh, you misses or something, and you look to the person behind you, maybe your old man is standing behind you. The fact of the matter is it's always existed. So, you know, while everybody's chasing um, innovation, um, I don't know, maybe I am that ugly twin. I'm sitting back at um, base <laughs> and, and I'm working out the strategy for protecting your brand, which is, by the way, the sexy flip side to something that we know in my business is trademarks. Um, where I'm, you know, working out how to protect your trademark in this country and other countries, working out how to how to portray that you have copyright ownership, how to make sure that your staff know what confidential information is when they probably don't know and don't care. So, so that's what that twinship is about, and and that and my my space is kind of in is is yeah, it's in the intellectual property area. What happens if we don't? 
Well, like I said, those rights exist whether you know about them or don't, right? So you can have access to protecting your company name or your new product and service names as trademarks and own that monopoly whether you wish to or don't wish to or know to or don't know to. Here's the problem. Because there are rules and regulations and laws and so forth around this, there's an entire structure that you're not taking part in, but other people can. And it can be a bit schizophrenic. And I'll I'll just give you a quick illustration. So this country is what's called a Australia I'm talking about is what's called um, a first-to-use country. In other words, the first person who uses something it has the most rights. The problem is, is that our trademark office acts like a first-to-file country. In other words, if you don't have a seat, if your trademark is not filed with the trademark office and you don't have registration, when someone files exactly your company name or exactly your new product or service name or logo, for instance, or slogan or or what have you, they're not going to come looking for you and say, hey, just by the way, um, someone's actually filed your intellectual property. Would you like to have it? If you don't take it, they're not interested in finding you and you'll never know until such time as that person knocks on your door and says, um, you're affecting my intellectual property. And you turn around and say, well, actually, it was mine. Well, yeah, it was yours if you'd done something about it. So intellectual property is kind of like insurance. You know, we all moan and carry on about having it, but the day that we need it, we're so grateful that we have it. You know, the day we front up to, you know, the emergency room with our 12-year-old kid with a broken leg, that's when we're really thrilled that we have it. Now, that's the, that's the negative, right? But the positive is this. I've had clients who have sold very small amounts of intellectual property for a bucket load of money. You know, like scratch your head kind of money where you think, are you serious? (laughs) Like I'm even surprised. Um, I had a client who sold $70 million worth of intellectual property and that wasn't even everything. You know, that was some of it. And and how that how that happened was that diligently, as this um, fellow created more trademarks and more brands, as he created more patents, or rather, rather, as he accrued more patents and more design registrations, he was just he just really got it. He was very good at making sure um, that he secured intellectual property rights in the countries where he was selling and in the countries where he was manufacturing, and he created this really strong tower of IP ownership. And, the you know, the day happened when a multinational from England tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, we'd like to buy it and, you know, have 70 million bucks. <laughs> you know, and that works for me. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. And when we put together his portfolio, which was, you know, several, uh, several uh, folders full, like literally if I'd thrown that folder across the room at you, I would have killed you, Gary, because there was just so much paperwork <laughs> in it, right? <laughs> And, and just so you know, before you get to your $70 million payday, there's the proctology of intellectual property, and that is basically the due diligence experience. You know, that's when the lawyers come to you and say, hey, some really rich person wants to buy your IP. Now prove that you own it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's when some really smart people start running around in circles because they don't know whether they do or they don't. So, if, so prior to all that happening, what in your mind – 
Mm-hmm. Does every business leader have to own? If there was a hierarchy of your top things yeah. that a business, business man or woman leader should look at, what, what, what are those things? Well, there's three top uh, types of IP that every single business has. I don't care what you're doing. Seriously, whether you're biotech um, or you're making new genes, and I don't mean G-E-N-E-S, like literally just you know pull on some genes, it doesn't matter. You're going to have trademarks, copyright, and confidence confidential information, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to have the something you call your business. You're going to have whatever your product uh, names or service names are, and those are going to be in that trademark realm. You're going to have copyright, which is like your website. It's your written material. It's manuals. It's policies. It's procedures. You know, it's all of the content that's created for your social media strategy, all of that, right? And then you're going to have confidential information. So all the stuff behind the scenes. It's the reason why you lock your damn door and why you have passwords and, and so forth. It's the stuff that nobody needs to know, but you and whoever you decide needs to know it. The, every business is going to have that, right? I'm sure, Gary, you thinking about the tech members that you've sat with or the you know business people you've sat with. That's it, right? But there are also those will have patents, they'll have designs, registered designs. Um, and then the more exotic type, um, which you don't run into very often, are circuit layout rights, which is very common in the manufacturing realm. And then plant breeders rights, which is, you know, for people who are in the new plant and tree breeds um, type area. Now, the biggest misconceptions also run hand in hand with those top three. And if you don't mind, I'll just give you the biggest misconception that I run into. And it doesn't matter what country it is either. And that is that, uh, that my company name or my business name is the same as having a trademark. And it's absolutely not. And to illustrate that point, you might remember a million years ago when Virgin Airlines came to town. I mean, it was it about 20 years ago now? When Virgin Enterprises came to town, the very first thing, did they, thing they did to make friends and influence people is they sued a whole bunch of Australian businesses. And they had every right to. And the reason why this is, is that they had been slowly protecting the Virgin brand in Australia's trademark office across many product and service uh, classes. They're called goods and service classes, and there's 45 of them, um, 35 goods classes and 11 service classes. And they had protected Virgin, the brand, like you would not believe, right? Meanwhile, a whole bunch of mom-and-pop type enterprises were just happily going along using Virgin because that was their business name or Virgin because that was their proprietary limit. And not any of them, except for one, had protected it as a trademark. So when Virgin started business in Australia, they naturally sent off cease and desist letters to every one of those. And the only one who won um, happened to have protected Virgin Hills in Class 32 for Grog. And they, they missed that onslaught because they had protected the trademark. Yeah, so that's probably the biggest misconception I run into. And to this day, even though I've been doing this for 20 years or so, I still run into it. Um, And it surprises me, but, you know, 
to, you know, old habits die hard. The, the, the second one that I run into, which is really dangerous, and it's, it, it's um, I even had to coin a term for it, and, and my, my two terms actually, um, dirty IP and ghost IP. Now, dirty IP is intellectual property you don't own because you did not use the right legal agreement or contract with um, the person who was creating the intellectual property, um, such as a subcontractor like your web designer or maybe your HR subcontractor, right? Ghost IP is IP you're never going to own because you didn't use that contract, but for whatever reason, you cannot come to terms with that person or that in, that that entity. They will not. Um, they won't. They won't do business with you. They're not going to hand it over. So just to just to reiterate, the second most common. A uh, misconception I run into is that if I've paid for the IP, I own it. And no, <laughs> no, you don't. In most cases, you paid for the IP for the pleasure of paying for it and using it, but you don't actually own it. And to own it, you need to be using the right contracts. So here's a question for me, being a little recording studio operator. Yeah. <laughs> and an example that, that actually Just so up. long as it doesn't put me between me and Gary right now, it's going to freak Gary out and somehow he's going to be the dirty IP guy, right? No, I'm just pulling out my contracts here, Alicia. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just check Don't on worry, this. I've got a contract template. We'll sort this out quickly. If there's a host of a podcast program. <laughs> no. I, think it's here in, I think it's in clause 13 in front of this, Robin. Just pull that up. Yeah, this, this is when that, people uh, start listening to me immediately get their phone out and start ringing people. But yeah, go ahead. See, my question comes to this. My question comes to I on sell a product, right? So I record right. a voiceover, I put some music or some sound effects behind it, or in the case of last week, I wrote music, I recorded that music, I had a vocalist come and sing. Yeah. And then I have a client in Singapore who has purchased that off me right. to use on their radio station. But yeah. technically, I still own that track. Because yeah, of the contract. I'm, I'm hearing dirty IP, you know. Yeah. I mean, was there, was it, there is, a it is dirty IP. And he, that's loves what to, he loves talking dirty. I like talking dirty. <laughs> Everybody likes it till the tears come out. Yeah. And that's yeah, when exactly. people realize that, you know, either A, they're the owner of the IP mm. or B, they got shafted. It's, we know, it's which one of those are you, which hat are you wearing at which time? But does it, my, my question is, what it would also come down to though is what you're happy to sign off on. Like the, mm. the radio station in Singapore had the option to buy it out completely and own it or pay, yep, pay per 12-month right. period, which was their choice. Yeah. So it, it's not completely well, – I guess what I was trying to get to was all this isn't completely set in stone. It can also be what you're comfortable with in some cases. Like you would never want to go that – run that risk with your company logo or your company name. Yeah. But in some cases uh, you and, might and go, I'm hey, well, I'm happy with you. You know, that's that's exactly right. Like I'm, I'm happy for you to make any decision you want. Just make a decision. Yeah. Be informed. And that's where I find the majority of business people are off in la-la land. They just, they haven't A, talked about it or thought about it and B, therefore, they're in the default position without knowing it and mm. C, they're operating from that default position without even knowing that that's, that's where they're at. That's yeah. where they're at. Alicia, if I hit this with the simple stick, yeah. when Robbo is recording something, sending it out, it really comes, in my mind, what I'm hearing is we should always be asking ourselves who owns the IP. And it's one exactly. thing to produce something and give it, but where it becomes dirty or ghost is where yeah. it's not clearly stated 
yeah. who owns it. And just because you produce something and then sell it on or give it away, mm. it does. It is, am I right in saying that we need to make sure there is an agreement that the person who produces it owns it? Yes. So the question is, A, who's creating the IP? Just start with that. Then B, who might be adding value or or enhancing or somehow changing the IP. But just going to that first point, right? So who's creating the IP? Just so long as you work out who that is, there's going to be a relationship that needs to be um, identified and then it needs to be handled unfortunately, primarily through a contractual agreement. The reason why I say unfortunately is because I have found that business people have this most amazing malady, and that is an utter allergy to lawyers until they desperately need them. So instead of, you know, using your lawyer as a strategic um, right hand, uh, sort of... uh, uh, enabling you to be a better business person. Lawyers are seen as the, um, uh, you know, the bad guys, right? So if you can just cure that one really quickly, then I guess I'm assuming the corollary to that will be that people would actually start suddenly using legal agreements um, in the right spirit, which is really just about establishing the relationship and the who owns what. And if you remember, I was saying, just going back to the due diligence comment, there's going to be ways and means of proving ownership when you have to. And one primary way is to have the registered trademark or the patent number or the design number, right? It's, it's, It's a certificate that a government has sent you and it proves that you own it. But the other way to prove ownership is almost always going to be a contract, a legal agreement of some sort. And it's those that, that business people need to be better at, at at having, at securing, and also at filing, like literally just, you know, putting them in the right place so they can be found. Yeah, this is such an interesting area. I am currently out shopping a, a book idea, and mm-hmm. it is a book that hasn't been done before. So it is a brand new category in books uh, that I haven't seen anywhere in the world. And so I'm mm-hmm. now out shopping with publishers and Mm -hmm. agents to say, look, you know, what should I do with this thing? Mm. But now you've got me thinking that I could be taking out this brand new category and you're out shopping this to startups, you know, small business are out shopping these brand new ideas where they found a Mm. territory that currently nobody is in, which is, you know, part of the marketing warfare building a new business, you find an uncharted territory. Yeah. But gee, there's, there's that whole area of someone who's wise hearing the idea. And if you don't own it and lock it up properly, you are just giving them the idea, aren't you? Yes, but no. And, no, and the reason good. why that is, yeah, <laughs> the reason why that is because in my very early life in intellectual property, um, I dealt heavily with inventors. And inventors are the most paranoid people on the planet. Um, They would have been fabulous as Cold War spies because they just will not whisper a thing because they're so paranoid that someone's going to steal their idea. 
The fact of the matter is intellectual property is tangible. It's the expression of something in a tangible form. Forget about the fact that accountants, people who we also need to love if we love our intellectual property, refer to IP as intangibles. Just put that aside. But remember, they're going to call them intangibles. In the world that we live in, intellectual property has to go from our head, where it's actually intellectual capital, to something that exists, whether it is um, the plan for something, whether it is the outline for a new book, um, whatever, right? It has to have a tangible form. So this brings up a couple of things you can do. One is... I happen to have two careers, and that is um, publishing and intellectual property. And I know the publishing area really well. If you come to me as a possible author and, you know, you want to have a covert meeting where you're not going to tell me very much, I can tell you right now, I can't do a thing with you. What am I going to do? How am I going to get any... um, power around your idea to, in a very tight market, push you forward and put any um, of my tiny budget into your book. I have to know what you're talking about. So therein comes the fact that you're going to have to share with me and there's going to be a certain amount of trust. But the other side of this is, is that there are times when you really should and 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 should only uh, share your idea, which is in some sort of tangible form, by virtue of a non-disclosure agreement, otherwise known as an NDA or potentially uh, also known as a confidentiality agreement. The problem with that is, and especially in my old days working with inventors, who, by the way, are just the worst people to work with because they're always broken, they're freaked out, so they're like they're like heroin um, affected individuals. Um, you know, you, you don't want to work with them, but you really care for them because they do things like put their whole house on the line. Is is that at some point you're going to run across someone who has loads of money who's not signing anything? They're just not going to do it. And I've had people in the joint venture space and also in the um, angel space say, "I don't sign any of those things. This is about trust and whether or not you're going to trust me." Okay, that's fine if that's how this relationship is going to start based on trust, fine, but go past that moment of trust, whatever it ends up being in your particular circumstances, what comes from that is still going to involve intellectual property that still has to be protected somehow or other. And there just seems to be this whole trust me thing And I can't advise you on that because that's going to be, you know, you're going to know the circumstances yourself. But after that point, there's still going to be IP. There's going to be the chapter that you write, the chapters that you write. You know what I mean? There's going to be the book cover and so on. Do non-disclosure agreements or confidentiality agreements, I mean, they stand up, Alicia. I mean, and there's two parts to it. Number one is um, quite often if I'm doing a speaking job or a consultancy job, Mm. a business, normally a bigger one will say, we want you to sign this. And they go, look, whatever happens in the room stays in the room. I don't really care. I'm happy to sign it. The other part that I've got, so there's that part. The other part I get is you get an email from somebody with a four-page non-disclosure confidentiality at the bottom of the email, of every Mm. email. (laughs) <laughs> Does mm. this stuff stand up? I mean, is it is it is it really valid, or is it a bit like peeing in a wetsuit, where it makes you feel warm and fuzzy, but no one else cares or knows what's going on? I mean, you is know, there is there some value to it? 
I know. Every time I get asked, you know, is is there value to this process? Um, and particularly when I'm presenting within the executive connection environment, there's always going to be one person there who's actually experienced this in real life. You know, they have um, been to court. So... Uh, yes, it does stand up and sometimes it doesn't. It depends on whether yeah, or not yeah. you're going to do something with it. Um, and that's what's called enforcement. You know, on the one hand, there's intellectual property and what it costs to to have it and protect it, say the cost of patents or the cost of um, filing a trademarks. But on the other hand is also um, the stick, which is enforcement. Are you willing? Are you willing to actually enforce your rights? Now, the CSIRO had something like 19 international patents for Wi-Fi, and they all pretty much died. Like, they've all finished. Their their 20-year tenure um, finished just a few years ago. Now, the royalties they made from those 19 patents was in the order of several hundred million dollars, several hundred million bucks for Wi-Fi to CSIRO. It's a that's a lot of little acronyms and that's a bucket load of money, right? Don't tell me they're not going to enforce a patent um, that's being infringed. Yeah. And you hear about it all yeah. the time. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly, um, you know, I subscribe to various uh, services that uh, – tell me about recent court cases and there are continually court cases I mean we wouldn't have we wouldn't have courts if these things aren't being pursued for enforcement so so yes they can stand up sometimes they don't um, and oftentimes that when they don't they sh- you know perhaps they should have but they didn't you know the spirit was broken there is a an entrepreneur here in this show and it's interesting I, I meet so many people who've got an idea uh, of their own and something they want to do for themselves. Mm-hmm. And the way the workforce is going to be in the future, it looks like, is we are going to be more self-employed, picking jobs as we go, wanting more of a lifestyle and so on. So it just seems to be more and more people wanting to do their own thing on their own terms. If there was an entrepreneur who's in that mindset right now, and they're about to take the step to do their own thing in some category, some way. What's the first thing you would have them do in terms of IP, starting mm-hmm. from absolute day zero? What would you have them do immediately to ensure that they don't end up at the wrong end of the stick? That's a wonderful question. And it's actually something I experience on a regular basis when I'm in LinkedIn. You know, we all use LinkedIn. You spend a few minutes there, which comes like an hour. And I guess it's the people I follow. I follow a lot of startup news. And because of the industry that I'm in, I might hear about a new startup. And the very first thing I do is I'll check out whether or not they have trademark protection. I'll just go straight away into um, the the Australian trademark trademark um, online search service and see whether or not they protected their brand. And it shocks me how many times uh, a startup that has actually sought publicity does not even have the most fundamental intellectual property 
protected or even applied for for protection. So it makes me wonder what's going on behind the scenes. And and so I end up doing a little 90-second video on what startups can do or, you know, an entrepreneur, so not necessarily someone who's a startup, but an, an entrepreneur with a small business idea. What can they do to maximize what is usually a shoestring budget? Because ultimately at the end of the day, this, there's very few people these days who are creating either their own job for a lifetime or the business of a life of a lifetime. They're usually creating an opportunity that they want to on sell. So they're creating something that they want to sell off um, and have investment and then move away from. As you know, generally everybody's exit strategy is um, I'm going to sell this one day. That seems to be roughly yeah. what it is. Yeah. So in my 90 second video, what I basically um, said is. First of all, sit down with advisors. You know, you're, you're, you, most advisors will give you 30 minutes free. Have someone give you 30 minutes of their free time to tell you what is the Rolls-Royce strategy of what you're intending. Sit down with a trademark attorney, a patent attorney, sit down with an IP lawyer and, and ask them, what would you do for me um, with X, you know, X idea? What, what, what do you suggest? And then once you know what that um, groundwork is and you have a bit of a budget, we'll pay out that budget as you can within the intellectual property area. Protect your brand. Get the right contract templates so that you can be um, owning the IP. And after that, I would say start with, you know, not even after that, uh, coincidentally to that, start um, creating your own IP portfolio. I'll, I'll never forget sitting down with an entrepreneur who was creating uh, a new makeup brand. It's a very successful makeup brand now, several years later. And I contacted her very early on. She had um, probably been in business for maybe, I don't know, 18 months, but she was already already getting pretty good buzz. And I said, let's do an IP audit. Let's find out what you actually own. Because by that point, she had a very well-known brand. She had packaging. She had website, a website. She had um, cosmetic formulas and so forth. So she had, you know, basically the beginnings of a, of a good business. So I sat down and did an IP audit with her only to find that she didn't own a damn thing. The business was a cash flow vessel. The money came in, the money came out, but she didn't own her brand because she hadn't protected it. She didn't own her packaging. She didn't own her cosmetic um, chemist's work. She didn't own any of it. I mean, it was shocking. And yet this was somebody whose long-term plan was to have the business bought for what, you know, many millions of dollars by, say, an American cosmetic company. Now, tell me anybody you know who's got 10 million, million bucks to throw at anything who's willing to throw it at a cash flow vessel and not actually have anything nailed down. So she came to um, a scary place. And that scary place was, you know, I've got dirty IP like crazy. If I go back to every one of these intellectual property creators and tell them to sign a deed of assignment for all the IP they've already created, they could decide not to do it. They could ask me for more money, um, you know, or, or, or something, some other, thing, some other thing along those lines. The amazing so, thing was, was that we Sorry, turned it around. Yep. Yeah, within 24 hours, a flood of deeds of assignments got faxed out. And in 24 hours, a flood of signed deeds of assignment came back. 
And she went from being a no IP owner to an IP owner of a very big, um, at a very big level. Let's just track this. There's, there's plenty in there that I need to unwrap. Um, mm. You talked about doing an IP audit. So Robbo and I hang up from this interview. We freak are going to go yes, freak out. <laughs> um, Robbo's still talking dirty, but we, we, we're over that. We've moved, moved on. And uh, he has had a Tim Tam. He's now had sufficient sugar and caffeine to... Oh, Tim Tams have whiskey these days, do they? I, I haven't realised. We should check into that. Bailey's. Oh, Bailey's. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. now he's interested. Yeah. Um, you said we do an IP audit. Tell me the f- top five things that would scare me that I should audit immediately when we hang up from this call. The top five things that would scare you. Well, pretty much what I've said so far, which is you probably don't have your brand sufficiently protected. You probably haven't um, understood the length and breadth of the copyright that you have had other people create for you who are technically known as the copyright owner. Um, You probably have got your confidential information all over the place, you know, like a bad night out. Um, You probably don't truly understand what your intellectual property value or or position is. Um, But you're going somewhere, right? So that's a great place to be. It's, it's, It's generally a good picture, but it's a confused picture. So an IP audit is really about running a fine-tooth comb through that and understanding, well, what's, what's the mess? What are the tangles? What do we have to do to fix it? And then that's what an IP audit should do is it, it ends with recommendations. You know, this is what I suggest that you need to do next. You talked about the cosmetics company and you said within 24 hours they had a deed. Yeah. Is that deed- something that a an expert writes for you or is this an expert do the audit and then write a deed which is almost like a, a, a cover note? Well, a deed of assignment is is generally, right, it's generally a, a pretty um, basic couple of page agreement that enables you to say what the IP is that's been created, who the owner is and who the new owner will be and, you know, should generally have some of the features that a more extensive contract would have that you would have used had you done that properly from the beginning, right? So if you'd used a contractor's agreement, you would have had, um, in you know, an indemnity, um, you would have had... Um, a warranty. Sorry, just totally blanked out there. You know, you would have had some of the, the, the main features of a larger agreement, you know, like a 16-page contractor's agreement would have the who's who, the what's what. Um, I created it. I really did. It's really mine and you can have it and this is for how much, right? A deed of assignment is for when the horse is bolted and you need to now assign the intellectual property from party A to party B. And, and that's why it's basic. It doesn't need to do all the things that you probably should have done to, to begin with. And, and that is, is often sufficient. But let's say this, let's say, for instance, that you said, well, I'll use a deed of assignment with my web designer. But the question is, are you going to continue to use that web designer? Yes. Okay. Well, we should probably put them on a contractor's agreement. You know, there needs to be a, a better agreement, a more extensive one with that. Here's one for you on websites just quickly. Mm-hmm. I, I did my own website and I used one of those online design your own website deals. Yeah, that would make you normal. Who owns that? 
Well, have a look at the fine print yeah. because guaranteed there was fine print. Yeah, I'm sure there was. Yeah. <laughs> you'll need, you'll need, your, you'll need sure your glasses, Robo. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have my you glasses know, on that day. It's like I don't mean to be um, – Such a good say, point. You know, I don't, I, I don't mean to be uh, kind of brash about it, mm. but it's just really a world that I live in that I'd like everybody else to live yeah. in. So it's quite simple for me because that's the world I live in. Mm. But I kind of want it to be really not that mysterious for everybody else either. Mm. You know, I want you to feel as comfortable in it as I feel mm. in it. Mm. That damn small mm. print, Alicia. It, do you know what? <laughs> do you know, do, I, I, I listen to you, Alicia, and, and I think there are so many times that I think I should read the small print in this, and there are times when it's really important and you, and you do. But yeah. with things like your website, you go, you know what, I've just got to get a website up. I need to get into it and get it done, and you don't. And then you find yourself in that situation where you go, shit, I should have stopped. It, yeah, and you know, generally, uh, fine print is uh, fine print because it's space saving, right? Mm, and mm. then sometimes it's fine print because we can't read it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it means that we miss something really key. And so, yeah, I mean, look, you know, uh, probably for for web development purposes, the fine print basically said that we retain the overarching copyright in the design, mm. um, but we don't say. Um, own the copyright and what you add to it after. I'm just hazarding yeah. a guess, right? Yeah. You're going to fill the vessel that they own with in your intellectual property. It's probably like that. Yeah, because that's what occurred to me. I mean, I own my logo and that actually is registered. That's one thing I have done that's good. Great. Um, but I've up uploaded it to their website. So what happens there? You know what I mean? And all that sort of stuff. That, that's what intrigues me with all this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I guess as things have become more sophisticated, what I have found is that business people have remained unsophisticated, mm. but the lawyers have um, remained top notch. And uh, so with that's kind of... Uh, you know, I don't mean to be adversarial about it, but that's kind of what we're up against. We're up yeah. against uh, a, a top-notch, well-oiled machine that really cares for the fact that there actually are laws uh, versus ourselves in this kind of ambivalent space of basically trying to make a buck. You've talked about uh, the trademark lawyers, IP specialists. How do I find one? There is someone listening to this who goes, holy mackerel, I haven't mm. covered any of my stuff. Yeah. And I go looking. I mean, I we've all bought homes or cars or we've, you know, had lawyers for, for stuff. Is, is, is a lawyer who's a lawyer do... Are there specialists who do this? And if there are, where do I find someone to help me through this? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So let's have a look at the the people in the intellectual property neighborhood, right? Who who are they? What, what roles do they fill? So you've got trademark attorneys. And a trademark attorney is someone who um, has, in, in the old days, um, probably past uh, the exam from the, oh my God, I've, I've suddenly realized that I can't remember the name of the body that actually uh, regulates this. So forgive me, there is actually a body that regulates this in this country and in other countries. And um, that person will have met um, whatever uh, standards they have set. And, and so there'll be a registered trademark attorney. Um, patent attorneys actually have to have a science degree in this country prior to being able to um, do the higher learning that is required to be a patent attorney. And there is actually higher learning. And, and they are also regulated by um, 
by an industry body. Uh, in America, from from memory, these need to be lawyers, and um, but in this country, you need to have a science degree to be a patent attorney. And that's because they tend to have specialists uh, or special areas of speciality, such as, for instance, aerospace or something along those lines. But generally, the drafting of a patent is, is something that, let's say you have someone who's done a, a degree in aerospace, um, there's not that many aerospace patents necessar- necessarily, so they tend to have generalist skills within the patent arena that can be of assistance to people who have other kinds of inventions. Um, and then there are IP lawyers, and, and IP lawyers might also say be a patent attorney and a trademark attorney, but generally not. Um, generally, this is somebody who is a lawyer who has chosen to focus on intellectual property as their uh, area of speciality. So what I have found in terms of the mistakes that business people tend to make is that if they have spoken to one of these people for five minutes, they automatically assume that, you know, shucks, everything else is sorted from there on in. And that's a terrible mistake to make. And I ended up um, writing a quick little blog post on that about the conversations you're not having because you think your IP lawyer or your trademark attorney is psychic or they somehow have, you know, your innovation activity in your business on an RSS feed. The reality is they have no idea what you're doing unless you pick up the phone or email them to let them know that you have, say, a new trademark that needs protecting or a new, um, say, packaging shape that needs design protection and so forth. So, Anybody who's going to be relatively innovative, um, I suggest that they actually, you know, develop a relationship with a good patent attorney, trademark attorney, IP lawyer, uh, and get to know them well. And and you know those that those that triad would be useful, but also might I just throw in one other, and that is to have an accountant that is that really understands this. And the reason for this is because um, how your entity uh, is set up could have a really big impact on how you are taxed if you actually go to sell intellectual property. And you might wish actually to have all of your IP held, for instance in another entity or even a family trust. And then that trust enables your trading entity to have access to the IP. And the reason for that would be because if, say, something terribly, something goes terribly wrong and the trading entity is sued and, you know, it dies a terrible death, the intellectual property was never in it. It just gets retracted back to the um, holding company that has it. So, yeah, wow. so an accountant and a lawyer who, who understand this and who work together, um, is that's a great place to be. You know, that's, that's when things are really humming for you. And that's quite typical of your upper echelon of business. You know, this is something that happens on an everyday basis in, in larger businesses uh, around the world. Robert, that's, that's gold. Isn't that gold? <laughs> Mate, that is gold. Tra- trademark pending. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll call that gold IP. And thank you to Spandau Ballet for your uh, intellectual property on that song we just played there. <laughs> cool. Well, this has been great. It's just made me think, uh, Robert, what we need to do is get AP, our voice guy on the phone, to do a tailor at the end of the show saying, this show is trademarked to <laughs> <laughs> Copyright, copyright protected. <laughs> that's right. Alicia, that's right. You do that. 
You've been so generous with your time. Mm. I, we, we have just loved talking to you. Honestly, I could go on. I've got questions I haven't even hit yet with there's so much great stuff amongst what you're doing. It's so valuable, so important. Thank you and very I think much. In, in this day and age, you're really on something here because with the, the number of people who are, let's call them startups or working for themselves or starting something from their home bedroom, mm. we all want to do it. If they're not doing it already, they're going to be doing it. We want lifestyle. And I think the stuff you're talking about is just, it's either we don't understand it in a lot of cases, or if we do mm. understand it, we just push it under the, under the mat. And uh, the payoff comes when you do do something extraordinary and other people want what you've done. That's right. The intellectual property, I think, is so valuable. You've been so, so generous. You've been great fun. And, um, thank you. And we just can't thank you enough. I've had a wonderful time, guys. Thank you so much. All the best. God, it's nice to hear someone say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to go pa- uh, pop a patented uh, beta blocker now, but yes, it's been great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Getting your mojo working. This is the Mojo Radio Show. So just as a little aside to that interview, you know that Tanae has her own jewellery design company, barefootdesigns.com.au, yep. just a little plug. Mm. Um, mm. She had a listen to that interview straight after we'd recorded it because it's something that she's obviously thought about um, and never had really had anyone to get any input from. And she's already implemented two or three things that um, that Alicia talked about in there. Um, in ter- one, one big one was basically her domain name could have easily been taken over by um, a company in the States who have a similar name. Um, that was wide open, and, and a couple of other things that she um, she discovered along the way that um, that were you know just waiting to be taken over by um, by somebody else. So um, so you know she found benefit that in she found benefit from that in just one listen. So you know imagine going back through it and having a couple of listens and writing a few notes. Well, that's probably the advice people just go back and listen to it a number of times, which is the beauty of podcasts because you can listen to them over and over and it's all free, mm. uh, but there is a lot of gold in Then Their Mojo Radio Show Hills and mm. great show, great talent. And if you are, I think if you're a business of any size and you are worried like this young girl who approached me after my gig in Sydney last week, if you are worried about an idea you've got and how you're going to do it, I think the investment you put into someone like Alicia pays off in spades to save the grief, the stress, money, all the all that goes with it when you do find yourself when someone's trying to steal all the hard work and all the ideas you've been bubbling around in your own mind. So we are going to do a second round with Alicia. We it was quite a long interview because there was so much to cover that we're going to have part two coming up in the weeks ahead. So please mm. keep an eye out. We'll let you know when the show's coming up. But uh, Alicia Beverly is certainly a superstar in an area that you don't hear talked about a lot yet. In this age of innovation and creativity, absolute necessity. So yeah. uh, it has been a big week. Quick shout out to Denny from Mildura who sent us a lovely note saying, the Mojo Radio Show is inspiring for all facets of life. Congratulations, exclamation mark. So oh, Denny. Denny, loving hey, your work. Hey, it doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> That'll put a smile on my face for the rest of today. Absolutely. Well, it does. It just, uh, it just gets your mojo working. Mm. And I think... Um, we're just going to we're going to leave with the great Jimi Hendrix. What track have you got for us, mate? Oh, I think we've got to play "Hey Joe." If you're talking Jimi Hendrix, don't we? We are. And Jimi Hendrix had this fabulous quote, which I absolutely love. Mm. Jimi Hendrix said, "Knowledge speaks, but wisdom listens." Nice. We're out. Hey Joe, where you going with that gun of yours?
Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time. <laughs>